Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Here's Pastor Mike with the message, Covert Corruption. All right, so before we get to our text, I want you guys to imagine uh, with me a flock of sheep, and they're all down in a valley grazing together. And I want you to notice that near the flock of the sheep, the flock of sheep, is, a, is the shepherd. And so I want you to notice that the shepherd is always there, he's always close by, and he's standing guard. The reason that he's standing guard is because it's not just the shepherd's job, right, to guide the sheep. It's not just the shepherd's job to feed the sheep. It's also his job, and I would argue his responsibility, to protect the sheep. And so what is he protecting the sheep from? Well, you guessed it, the savage, ravenous wolves. And so as that particular wolf, right, is stalking the flock, he probably remembers the last time he had leg of lamb, so to speak. And he can't wait, he can't wait for his next meal. He's so hungry, he's ravished with hunger, but he knows he's gotta be patient because if he moves too quickly, he's gonna miss his meal. And then finally what he's been hoping for happens, what happens is that one lone sheep gets away from the flock. You know, this is now the fourth time I've seen this picture, and it moves my heart. And you wanna yell at the sheep, hey, get back to the flock. More importantly, get back to the shepherd. Why? Because it's not gonna end well for you if you stay all by yourself. And sure enough, before the sheep realizes the danger, he's being dragged away by the wolf. If he had only stayed in the flock, if he had only stayed close to the shepherd, ladies and gentlemen, that never would have happened. But because he drifted, he became dinner. All right, so in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul calls for a conference. All right, and so the word shepherd is synonymous with the word pastor. Acts 20, Paul calls for a pastor's conference, and he wants to um, encourage the pastors, but he also wants to warn them about the danger of fierce wolves. And so this is what he says to the pastors in and around Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he, Jesus, obtained with his own blood. Paul then said to these pastors, I know that after my departure, and can you guys say the, the top two words, top right screen? See that? I know that after I leave, Paul said, fierce wolves are gonna come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves are gonna rise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Uh, one of the many marks of a false teacher is they don't point to Christ, they point to themselves. They point to them, to their little pet unorthodox doctrine and what they have to say. It's all about me, me, me. No, um, it's actually all about Jesus Christ, but this is what they do to draw away the disciples after them. And Paul says to these pastors, therefore be alert. And so he warned the guys to be alert because fierce wolves are gonna come into their churches and those fierce wolves are not gonna spare 
the flock. And then, you gotta love the boldness of Paul, he looks at these guys, probably a lot of them in the room or wherever they're having this pastor's conference, he looks at them and he says, even some of you, <laughs> even some of you in the future are gonna come, become false teachers. And so even though some of these guys at the conference, they looked religious on the outside, they were unregenerate on the inside. They had never been born again and it was only a matter of time before they themselves became wolves teaching twisted things. Now, of course, Jesus Christ um, warned us of this as well. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in what kind of clothing? You guys see that? And so no false teacher is ever gonna come with a big sign around his neck, I'm a false teacher, right? He's, they're way more deceptive than that. And so beware of false prophets, our Lord said, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. All right, so what does this look like? You've seen this before, I'm sure. By the way, it looks like that wolf is smiling, doesn't it? And so, religious leaders, they may smile, they may say nice things, they may even wear religious looking clothes, but beware, because underneath the fleece, there may be a wolf. Now regarding this, the Apostle Paul said in his second letter to the church of Corinth, he said, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul goes on to say, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And so again, just because somebody comes saying nice things, somebody comes smiling, somebody is talking about religion, that doesn't mean that they belong to Christ, it doesn't mean that they've been born again, it doesn't mean that they've been called and sent by the Holy Spirit. Their religiosity on the outside may just be a disguise so Satan can covertly cause corruption through them, Covert corruption, secretly bringing in heresies into the church. This is exactly what the, what the Apostle Peter warns us about in chapter two. The whole chapter, again, given over to this topic, but um, look at verse one. Right now, if you're looking at 2 Peter chapter two, verse one, can you say amen? Okay, so here we go. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, i.e. in Old Testament times, just as there will be false teachers among you, i.e. in New Testament times, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so what was, Paul, what was uh, Peter saying? He was saying, just like there were false prophets among the Old Testament saints in ancient Israel, so there's gonna be false teachers among the New Testament saints in the local churches. And what these people are gonna do, these false teachers, is they're going to secretly bring in destructive heresies, the word simply means false doctrine, they're gonna secretly bring in these false doctrines into the New Testament church. And so if you wanna take notes today, here's your first point. 
and that is that false teachers secretly float their false teachings, how? By mixing lies with the truth. That's how they do it. Perhaps you've heard before that Satan will tell us 10 lies in order to get us to believe one, um, I'm sorry, he'll tell us 10 truths in order to get us to believe one lie. And that's so true. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan will tell 10 truths in order to float one lie. Every cult, every theologically liberal church, every apostate church, all those religious systems, they have some truth. The problem is the truth is mixed with lies. The truth is mixed with heresy. The truth is mixed with false teaching, which makes those religious systems very deceptive. And so again, in Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to who? Christ, relationship with Christ. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, now this right here is fascinating to me. Look how deceptive this is. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, who's we? Paul and the apostles. Where can you find their teachings? In the New Testament. What's the first, what's the, what's the early church? What were they all about? Acts 2.42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. What should we be all about? The apostles' teaching. In the New Testament. And the whole Bible. All right, and so what he's saying here is that if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one the apostles proclaimed, the New Testament proclaims, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, look at this, you put up with it readily enough. So the same problem we have today is the same problem they had 2,000 years ago. What is the number one value in our culture today? It's tolerance, right? We, we have to accept and tolerate everything, no matter if it's right or if it's wrong. And if you're not tolerant, then you're a bigot, you know, you're not woke, and we're gonna cancel you or whatever. And this is the same problem that they had 2,000 years ago. Another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, and what's the church doing? They're tolerating it. They're putting up with it readily enough. Do you guys know that somebody can use the name Jesus and yet be totally off base concerning who the true Jesus is? <laughs> Somebody can use the term gospel and be totally off base as to what the true gospel of grace is all about. And so we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful that we don't embrace a different Jesus. We gotta be careful that we don't embrace a different gospel that comes from a different spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but a demonic spirit. And that's exactly what Peter warned us about in verse one. He says in verse one that false teachers are gonna come among you and they're secretly gonna bring in destructive heresies and they're gonna deny the master, that's Jesus, who bought them, that's salvation. And so false teachers deny the master who bought them when they proclaim a different Jesus 
and when they proclaim a different gospel. And I just wanna hit the pause button here because this is super important. I wanna pause here for a little while. Now, when you consider the word of God and all the hundreds of doctrines in the word of God, every single one of them is important. Every single doctrine, by the way, in the New Testament um, is super important. But two of the doctrines that are way, way up there concerning how essential they are has to, has to do with the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. We call it Christology and we call it soteriology, all right? And so stay with me here, you gotta get this. This is like basic Christianity 101, but we're talking about the truth about Jesus and the truth about the gospel. So regarding Christology, you gotta know that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. You gotta get that. And yes, I'm gonna quote it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, help me out, was God. Jesus was and is God. Go down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Fully God, fully man. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's the true Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus of the New Testament. Any other Jesus other than the one described on that first line is another Jesus. It's a false Jesus. Are you guys getting this this morning, this afternoon? All right, and so what does the Bible teach about Jesus? What do we believe about Jesus? He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He actually did authentic miracles. And this is the doctrine that the Lord used to save my soul, reconcile me with the Father, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on that cross in our place. He literally um, got out of the grave bodily, bodily resurrection, and of course the Bible teaches his literal return. And so what we believe about Jesus is absolutely para, uh, paramount because he, here's the thing, if we embrace another Jesus, <laughs> we embrace a Jesus who cannot save us. That's why this is so essential, this is why this is so important. Now regarding soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, you guys hear me say this a lot, right? Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And please notice it's apart from meritorious works. Any gospel that says that Jesus' uh, work on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection is insufficient for the full payment of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so we have to add to Jesus meritorious works in order to earn our way to heaven. Any gospel that says that is not a true gospel. It's a false gospel. And by the way, this is what the Church of Galatia was dealing with 2,000 years ago, because the Apostle Paul went there, he taught the gospel of grace, and then he left, and guess what happened? The fierce wolves came in, they're called legalists or Judaizers, and they came in and said, listen, Jesus, that's great, but it's, he's not enough. You also need to get circumcised. Do something else, right? And so what does Paul say in Galatians 1.6? I cannot believe this. You've accepted a different gospel. And so ladies and gentlemen, listen, by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We don't do works to be saved, 
We do works because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You say, Pastor, you say that every week. I know. <laughs> I know. Because I know that is how we're gonna be born again. It's through the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so false teachers deny the master who bought them, verse one. Now, now did you hear that? The master who bought them, who? The false teachers. And somebody says, whoa, hang on, wait a minute. Jesus bought false teachers? Yeah. Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. If you want a reference for that, that's 1 John 2, 2. He died for everybody. But we gotta turn to him in genuine repentance and faith in order to receive the benefit of his payment. Okay, so please, please tune in. This is the gospel in a nutshell, okay? Here we are, we're going our own way, we're doing our own thing, we're living our own life, don't tell me how to live, I'm gonna live however I wanna live. And then one day we're confronted by grace with the true Jesus and the true gospel. And now all of a sudden, because God will always call sin, sin, he'll never change his definition, and now all of a sudden we're under conviction because of our sin. And the gospel tells us that you can't get saved till you realize you're lost. And the penalty of sin is, help me out, death. Eternal separation from God in hell forever. So what do we do? Well, if we respond, we turn around and we begin to go this way, right, toward the true gospel of grace. We turn around, we turn away from our sins. That's not works. That is a willingness to let go of our sin. And by the way, we'll never overcome our sin outside of the power of the resurrected Christ living inside of us. But we turn away from it. And what do we do? We turn to Jesus. You see him on the cross? And there he is on the cross, and what do we, what do we believe about what he did? He's our substitute. It should have been us, but he's up there, why? Because he loves us, and he's paying for our sins and the sins of the whole world. He dies in our place so we don't have to die and go to hell. He rises again the third day, and what we do is we accept him as our savior. We accept him as the Lord of our lives. And guess what happens? He comes inside of us, and the Holy Spirit is there, and we're sealed until the day of redemption. That's the true Jesus, fully God and fully man, and that is the true gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If this makes sense to you guys, can you say amen? amen. Okay, and so we should always glory in the gospel. We should always glory in the grace of God and the fact that he so loves us, he reached out to us. But back to the false teachers, it says now in verse two, and many will follow their sensuality. Many, this is sad to me. Many people, so a large crowd is no guarantee that God is blessing and God is moving. You guys see that? Because many are following false, following false teachers. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be Blasphemed, because so what we see here is that many people are gonna follow false teachers because of their sensuality, because of their immoral conduct. And so regarding verse two, bibleref.com, which by the way is a ministry of gotquestions.org, 
So BibleRef.com is an online Bible commentary, but it's concerning verse two, it says that one trait of these false teachers will be participation in immoral sexual conduct. This is something they will encourage Christians to join in as well. And so if you've been around the Bible for more than five minutes, you know that the Bible is very clear. The Bible has clear standards of right and wrong. The Bible is super clear as to when sexual activity is appropriate and when it is not appropriate. And so what, what false teachers have to do is they have to deny the fact that this book is actually God's word. Why? In order to justify their sexually immoral behavior. It's the only way they can get by with it, with their open, their, their open immorality, is to say, oh, this is just you know, a man's book, and so how convenient, so that they can live however they want to live. And so what do they do? They deny the Bible is God's word in order to get by with their openly sinful lifestyle. And this, what I'm talking about right now, is prevalent in our culture today and in quote unquote churches today. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in an age of apostasy. The word apostasy means a falling away from the truth. And so many, many, many churches, thousands of churches have apostatized. That means they've fallen away from the truth. And theological liberal churches, many of them, um, they deny that the Bible is God's word Therefore, both pastors and parishioners can promote and practice sexual immorality. All right, so what is sexual immorality? What is God's definition of sexual immorality? It is, if you're with me, say amen here. And I gotta be super clear because our culture is falling apart all around us and that's why we gotta be clear about this. God's definition of sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of the covenant marriage between a man and a woman. That's it right there. Any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality and has to be repented of. And so in our modern day uh, sexual evolution, right, where anything goes, concerning sexual activity. And, and, and listen, we are expected now to accept the sexual immorality of the culture, and not only that, they, 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 they're not satisfied with us just accepting it, now they want us to celebrate it. And as I said before, if you don't accept it, then you're not woke, and they will cancel you. But here's the thing, we gotta get over it, and we gotta realize that we're, it, it's better to be biblical than woke, and you can cancel me all day long, but Jesus Christ will never cancel me. That's the stand that we gotta take. And if you make a decision, and it is a decision, to take that stand, just know you will always, for the rest of your life, be in the minority. And you will always have enemies. And there will be always people who call you a bigot or narrow-minded or, or whatever, but, but listen, it's okay, because with God, we're a majority. And a million years from now, is it really gonna matter what our woke culture says we should be doing? No, it's not gonna matter at all. And so, 
verse three says this. Speaking about false teachers, many will follow their sensuality, verse two, but now in verse three, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so we see right here what motivates a lot of these false teachers. It's not the love of Christ, it's not the love of the word of God, and it's not the love of God's people or the love for the lost. That's not what motivates them. What motivates them is the love of money, which is a root, Paul tells Timothy, of all kinds of evil. And so regarding the motive of greed, Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite commentators, says this. He says, our heresy meters should buzz loudly when we see an overwhelming emphasis on money. Talking about in churches and ministries. If the application of virtually every message is to sow a financial seed, you guys have heard this, right? Or reap a material harvest, we should do what? Run, run. We've all heard the story of churches that take three, four offerings per service and they're constantly hitting, 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 money, money, money. By the way, did you guys notice uh, that we stopped passing the chicken buckets? We stopped receiving the offering. You guys notice that? Did you know that we have not received an offering for about a year in our church? And guess what? For the last 12 months, God has wonderfully provided for our church. That God is good. Where God guides, God always provides. And don't think, oh, okay, great, they don't receive an offering, so I'm off the hook, I don't have to give. That's number one, between you and the Lord, but we do have our website, we do have push pay, we do have boxes in the back. But I'll never change my tune. I've been saying this for a long, long time. The primary reason that we give is not to get something from God. The primary reason we give is to honor God. Amen. That's the hard attitude. That's the attitude that we have to have. When, when we choose to freely follow the principle of the tithe, what is that? That's an act of worship to God. And it's an act of faith to God as well. Because when we choose to put God first in every area of our lives, including our finances, what are we doing? What well, we're saying to God as we give him 10%, right? And I know some people give more and that's between you and the Lord. But when, when we make that decision to, to put God first, right? What are we saying? We're saying, God, I'm trusting you. I actually believe you exist. I actually believe that if I seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, all these things, not my greeds, but my needs are gonna be taken care of because you're a good, good father. And so it's an act of worship and it's an act of faith in the true and living God. We do not primarily give to get something from God. Please don't give to try to be rich. It's not taught in the Bible at all. Now there is the verse where Jesus says, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will men pour into your lap. The same measure that you give will be given back to you. I know that that, 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 that is there and I know that that is true, but that's not the primary reason that we give. And listen, that could be money, but that could also be um, helping somebody or encouraging somebody or loving somebody or caring for somebody. And listen, when we give, God may give material blessings, but he may choose to give immaterial blessings, spiritual blessings, okay? So we have to have the right heart. 
Not the heart that Chuck Swindoll talked about, where the application of virtually every message is to sow a financial seed or reap a material harvest. No, our hearts should be, it's an act of worship. I'm gonna read verses four through 10 now. And the reason I'm gonna read four all the way down to 10 is because in the Greek, this is one long sentence. Okay, and so if you're uh, taking Greek, it's really, really hard <laughs> to interpret this. But we thank God for Greek scholars among us. I thank God personally for the ESV version of the Bible. And so here we go, one long sentence in the Greek. If you're looking at verse four, can you say amen? All right, so if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is gonna happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, uh, day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If God can rescue Lot, verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is just on a roll and that's one long sentence. And so, what does he do in verses four through 10? What he does is he gives us three examples, three illustrations that guarantees the judgment of these false teachers that are negatively affecting these New Testament churches. Okay, so the first illustration he gives, well first I'll give you your, your, your next point. So here's the synopsis of verses four through 10. If God judged evil angels, the ancient world, and Sodom and Gomorrah he's also gonna judge false teachers. Now, I know some of you may be new, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, why in the world are you talking about this stuff? We're just going verse by verse through the apostles' letter. <laughs> this is what we do, we're teaching the Bible, this is what the Bible says. And so if God judged evil angels in the ancient world in Sodom and Gomorrah, he's also gonna judge false teachers. All right, so the first illustration that he gives us is the illustration of the evil angels. And that's found in verse four. Can you look at verse four again? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now, everybody just look at me real quick. We all know that Satan, Lucifer, tried a coup d'etat against God and somehow deceived a third of the angels and they were booted from heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. He says that these angels, God sent to hell. Okay, the angels that fell with Lucifer from heaven 
fallen angels who become demons, they're not in hell right now, they're, they're all around this world. But a certain segment of them did something so heinous that God sent a certain segment of them to hell. And then we'll continue now with the verse in verse four. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, okay? And so Peter's referring here to the story of the fallen angels that's recorded in Genesis 6-2. In Genesis 6-2, what we have is, in the Hebrew, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and so as you continue to read, they have sexual relationships with the daughters of men. All right, and so who are the sons of God? I know that there's two big uh, teachings within the evangelical church. I really believe that these are fallen angels, evil angels. The reason I believe that is because sons of God, in Genesis 6-2, that phrase, that same Hebrew phrase is used three times in the book of Job to describe angels. Not only that, if you know Greek and you go back to the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the... Um, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so supposedly 70 Jewish scholars got together 250 BC and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek and that's the Greek Old Testament's called the Septuagint. If you're reading your Bible, sometimes you see LXX. That's what it's referring to. The Septuagint was essentially the Bible of the apostles. And so when you go to the Septuagint and you look up Genesis 6-2, guess what you see? The angels of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And as you continue to read, they had sexual relationships with them. You say, how does that happen? Right, I, saw, I thought Jesus said uh, that when we die, we're, there's not gonna be marriage in heaven, we're gonna live like the angels. I thought angels were sexless beings, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I don't know how it happened. Um, scholars that I admire think that it was demonic possession of evil men and that's how it occurred. But nonetheless, evil angels, according to Jude, left their proper dwelling. And so what did God do? God cast them into hell. And he chained them under gloomy darkness so that they would never commit such a heinous crime again. Peter chooses a very interesting word for our English word, hell. So normally, if you're reading Greek and you're reading the New Testament, you come upon the word that we translate as hell, it's Hades. That's not the word he uses here. He uses a word one time that it appears in the entire Bible, entire New Testament, it's Tartarus in the Greek. Tartarus, okay, what is that? Where did he get that from? Apparently, Peter borrowed that from Greek mythology because in Greek mythology, Tartarus is the lowest hell. It's a a place, a horrible place of judgment that is even lower than Hades, kind of like the lowest hellhole that you can find. God took these angels because of their heinous crime, because they left their proper dwelling, because they did the unthinkable, and he puts them down in Tartarus and he chains them in gloomy darkness to await the final judgment, the judgment of the lake of fire so they could never do anything like that again. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying simply that if God judged the evil angels, one day he's gonna judge these false teachers that are bringing in corruption to the New Testament churches. It's kind of sobering. <laughs> and now we see the second example, and that is the example of the ancient world. 
It says that if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so the second illustration here regards the global flood. And of course, you can find that, you can read about that in Genesis chapter six, seven, and eight. I know you guys know the story, so I'll just touch on a few parts of it and we'll move on. But can you guys imagine, if you were Noah, can you imagine God telling you to build an ark because he's gonna flood the world? And so what does Noah do? Peter calls him a herald of righteousness. He does what, the God, what God told him to do. Can you imagine the ridicule? Can you imagine the sneers? Can you imagine the verbal attacks? Hey Noah, what you doing there? What's with the big boat, Noah? Oh yeah, yeah, I heard what you said last week. God's gonna destroy the world, sure. And apparently for 120 years, Noah was a witness to the ungodly world. He was a witness with his lips, he was a witness with his life, he was a witness with his labor as he built this big boat. People saw it, guess what? No converts outside of his family. They just laughed at him. And then the Bible says in Genesis chapter seven, verse 16, that after Noah and the other seven members of his family, so his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, after they got into the boat, after all the animals were in the boat, they got into the boat, it says in Genesis 7, 16, the Lord shut him in. Ladies and gentlemen, judgment day is coming. Whether we accept it or not, whether we believe it or not, God is patient. 120 years is a long time. God is not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But at some point, judgment will come. And I can see the people out there laughing and laughing, right? Oh, look, he's going in the boat, they're going in, oh, the door closed, and they feel a raindrop. Right, and then the deluge sweeps them all away. What's Peter saying? As judgment came to the ancient world, it'll one day come to the false teachers. Gonna happen. The third illustration he used was Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's gonna happen to the ungodly. And so what we see here now is that Peter's referring to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah recorded in Genesis 19. Now maybe you're not as familiar with this story as the story of Noah, so I'll go a little uh, deeper into this story, but you guys remember that Sodom and Gomorrah wheels off immorality, and so God decides, because of the cry that's going up before him, um, he, he decides he's gonna judge these two cities. And he sends two angels. The Bible says the two angels have the appearance of men. You say, how does that work? I have no idea. And they go to the gate of Sodom. And as they go to the gate of Sodom, guess who's sitting there at the gate? Lot, Abraham's nephew, who by the way was a believer, a backslidden believer, and yet a believer. And he's there, and he's sitting at the gate, which tells us that he may be some kind of politician in the city, the wheels off immoral city of Sodom. And, and they come, 
and he greets them, and they say that they're gonna you know, spend the night in the open square. Lot knows what happens at night in Sodom, and he's like, uh, no, come be a guest at my home. He brings them into his house, and that's when all craziness, insanity breaks loose. The next thing you know, the men of Sodom, the Bible says, surround Lot's house, and they begin to shout, and I'm shouting now from Genesis 19, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Right? Hey, Lot, we wanna have sex with the two guys that you brought into your house. Bring them out. And, and Lot opens the door, and he's trying to reason with these people, and yet they're, they're just getting angry, and so now they're pushing against Lot, they're trying to break down the door, and the angels strike these guys, at least some of them, with blindness. And this is really weird, but it says that they're actually wearing themselves out, groping around, trying to find the door. It's just total wheels off insanity. The angels look at Lot and they say, if you got any family members, get them out. God's gonna destroy this place. And sure enough, the next morning, the sun rises and God, ladies and gentlemen, we gotta accept this, judgment day is coming. He rains down fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and there's just nothing left in sight. Somebody says, come on, pastor. That's the Old Testament. God changed. He's a nice guy in the New Testament. <laughs> Did you guys know that God is immutable? You know what the word immutable means? Unchanging. God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same view that God has against sin in the Old Testament is the same view he has against sin in the New Testament. And God, by the way, feels the same way about homosexuality in the New Testament era as he did in the Old Testament era. Just read Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 28. It's so clear, men having sex with men, women having sex with women, it's called sin. Now, Here's why I wanna be super careful, church family, because here's what we can do if we're not careful. We can get in the flesh, and we can all of a sudden become self-righteous, and we can begin to look at, down our noses at a certain segment of society that's behaving in a certain way, and we can be, be, begin to, to forget the fact, listen to me, that we are all, can you guys say the word all? All sinners in need of a savior. All of us. And did you know that there's hope for anybody, anywhere, anytime, no matter what they're involved in? This is what I love about the power of the gospel. It has power to actually change us. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says in chapter six, verses nine and following, listen to the hope. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you're listening to me, say amen here. I want you to hear the hope of the gospel. Paul says, and such were some of you, 
but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see what's happening here? Paul's writing to the church of Corinth and a lot of those people in the church were former homosexuals and idolaters and sexually immoral people. But guess what? They were going this way and instead of getting offended by the message and offended by the, what, what God calls sin is sin and continuing to go their own way, they actually stopped and they realized, you know what, God loves me. And, and the kindness of God is gonna lead me to repentance and they turn their back on the sin. There's a willingness to let it go and they turn to Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, when we do that, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has the power to change us. And he says, yeah, it's good news. And he says, such were some of you, but now guess what? You're washed, you're justified, you're forgiven. And now they're actually living holy lives. Why? Because they've invited the power of Christ to change their life. This is the good news of the gospel. And so here's what we don't do. We don't try to change God and we don't try to change the Bible. We humble ourselves and we let God and the Bible and the Holy Spirit change us. And if we'll just have that humble attitude, which is contrary to what our culture believes and teaches, It'll be good for us. What are God's boundaries for sexual activity? Let, can you guys shout out the next word, please? You guys see that? You say, that's so old-fashioned. No, it's God's word. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Why do you wanna be judged? And can you believe, can you imagine the world we would live in if everybody just obeyed that verse? What kind of world would this be? If every single person only had sex in the marriage between a man and a woman. Here's what would happen. Marriages would be super strengthened. Children would have a better chance of growing up in stable homes. STDs would be abolished and many people, millions of people, that should be alive today would still be alive, but they're dead. So what's Peter saying in verses four through 10? What he's saying is just as judgment came to the evil angels and the ancient world and Sodom and Gomorrah, so judgment is gonna come to these false teachers that have the audacity to bring in false teaching and corruption into the New Testament churches. And so, a recap of the whole message in closing. Verse one, false teachers float heresies secretly. That's covert corruption. Latter part of verse one, they deny the master who bought them. That's Jesus and salvation, the true Christ, the true gospel. Verse two, they live sensual lives. In order to get away with that, they gotta deny that the Bible is God's word to justify their sin. Verse three, they're motivated by greed, though they're materialistically minded, and then verses four through 10, that one long sentence, they will be judged, divine judgment absolutely will come. Now I want you to hear the heart of God. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But here's what God will never do. I know I've already said it, but he will never stop calling sin, sin. So we have to call sin, sin. And we need to turn away from it and we need to cry out for help. And when we do that, listen, Jesus is right there. Because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. The question I have for you, no matter what you're going through or what you're dealing with, is are you willing to turn? Are you willing to turn to Christ? Again, you're not gonna be able to overcome whatever it is that you may be involved in. You're not gonna be able to overcome that on your own. You need him. You need his power. You need his grace. You need his love. And he's just a prayer away. He will respond if you turn to him. Amen? Amen. Elders and elders' wives, come on up. Pastors and pastors' wives, we wanna be here for you If you have anything on your heart, anything on your mind that you need prayer for, uh, after the closing prayer, you just come up and um, everything's confidential, but we would love to be able to pray for you, encourage you uh, before you go today. And then um, listen to this. If anybody's here or watching and you're not sure where you stand with God, so you're not sure where you're gonna go when you die, you have no idea, listen, um, you've got to turn to Christ today. That's my encouragement. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Believe that he died in your place and rose again. Receive him as your savior. Um, If you need some help, um, you can come up after closing prayer, but you can also go to our website um, and click on Knowing Christ. The gospel is there. The gospel of grace. And so read it, understand it, accept Jesus into your life. Then after you're saved, listen to this, then... Follow the Lord in baptism and become a lifelong follower of Christ. I've been saying this all weekend. You only have one life. It'll soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ is gonna last. So make that decision that falls in your court. I hope you'll do that.